0: This is chapter 133 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We have our list. We've checked it twice. From the latest installment of the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series to a ghost story set at Christmas time in Charleston to a modern retelling of Little Women and a few envy-inducing coffee table books, this week we're highlighting books perfect for everyone on your holiday gift list. Even if you don't have kids, you've probably heard of the wildly popular Diary of a Wimpy Kid books. Since the first book was published in 2007, the series has sold hundreds of millions of copies worldwide. And author Jeff Kinney says he has no immediate plans to stop. We spoke with him fresh off of an international tour for the latest installment in the series called Wrecking Ball. Here we are talking about book number 14. Did you ever imagine when you first started writing about Greg Heffley and his family that it would be as big as it is now?
1: I never thought I'd get published. I thought that the series, or actually the book at that time, was just too strange. There wasn't really anything like it in in the market at that time. So, um I have been surprised every day since publication.
0: And just in case people don't know, your Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, we're talking 74 editions in 62 languages with more than 200 million copies sold. Does that still floor you every time you hear that?
1: Yeah, it's getting weirder and weirder. In fact, we just I think we just added a 64th language, which was Somali, and I'm pretty sure that it's being published to help uh, preserve uh, the Somali language in um, in Sweden with refugees Uh, so it's really uh, you know we're we're in really uncharted territory for you know strangeness in terms of how this book uh, has moved and what it's used for
0: you talk to the kids and the teens who read your books all the time what do they tell you is the reason that they love these stories
1: you know, I, I they they don't often tell me. <laughs> so, our our interactions are very brief at the signing table, and, you know, and all of that. But but I did have a really touching experience in Greece uh, just just last week. Um, there were probably about out of out of about four hundred people who came to an event. There were probably about six or seven who were I'd say between ages sixteen and twenty one and they came to tell me um how much the books meant to them grow, growing up and that I, I don't often get that and and you know i've been doing this for about 12 years now so maybe and hopefully i'll get more of that but that that meant a lot to me and it, it was really cool um to hear that that the books had provided a, a bright light during some difficult times for some of these kids
0: it's really amazing to think, too, that this, this story that you didn't think would ever get published resonates with so many people around the world, regardless of culture and history and background and language.
1: I think I'm stealing from Jacqueline Woodson. Uh, she she re- recently said that some books are, are windows into other worlds and some books are mirrors into our own. And I, I think that kids are are using my books as mirrors. I think that they can see themselves in the characters and the situations. Um, you know, my my books are sort of like stand-up comedy. Uh, the reason we find a stand-up comedian funny is because he's talking about things that we all experience but don't often talk about or can't really articulate in, in humorous terms. So, um, you know, that's that's where the humor comes from in my books as well. I'm just writing about normal childhood experiences, um, but but I'm giving kids a different prism to view their childhood through.
0: I know you probably get asked this all the time, but are the characters and the storylines based on your real life?
1: They were, at least. um, Starting off, my books definitely were a reflection or sort of a fictionalized version of my own childhood. And over time, um, I've gotten further from my childhood and I've used up my own memories. So the characters, to me, they've Feel real, and they they feel uh, divorced from my myself and my family members. But I I think the DNA of the characters goes goes way back.
0: So let's talk about this latest installment, Wrecking Ball. Tell us what can we expect this time around.
1: Okay, let me give it the pitch. In Diary of Wimpy Kid, Wrecking Ball, uh, the Heffley family finds out that that uh, home in, home improvement is not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, so the family goes through a money pit style. Um, story and then actually the last act is is all about uh moving and the you know what that feels like and what what you're leaving behind if you're a kid and you move.
0: It sounds to me that a lot of adults could probably relate with that the adult version of that home improvement angle.
1: Yeah, yeah, we've been doing home improvements on our own home and it's taken a year and a half so far. Uh so we we know what it's like to be displaced for sure.
0: Now, I know uh, you're an advocate for limiting screen time for kids and also for getting physical books into the hands of kids. Tell me why that's so important to you.
1: It's so important because, and I'm, of course, going to make myself sound old here, but, you know, kids and, and adults are, are living their lives through there are screens uh, these days, and you know we don't know what this is going to lead to, or we don't know what the effects of this are going to be, so I think in a sense, you know if a book just takes a kid away from a screen for a little while, then it's serving some sort of purpose. but I also think that there's a um there's a there's a magic uh there's a connection uh, that happens between a kid and a book, a physical book a book really is a physical object it's not just. It's not just the words and the pictures and the, and the content inside. It's it's a sort of a sacred object to a kid. Um, you know, I've recently been recollecting the books that I had as a kid, and I still feel that spark of magic when I hold something that I held when I was a kid.
0: What were some of your favorite books as a kid?
1: Let's see. I like Judy Bloom growing up. I, I like Beverly Cleary, so I liked um, the Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing by Judy Bloom. I like Ramona. Uh, Quimby, age 8, I think was the full title, um, by Beverly Cleary. I liked The Giving Tree uh, by Shel Silverstein, A Light in the Attic, uh, Where the Sidewalk Ends. I liked um, Anything by J.R.R. R. Tolkien. I liked uh, a fantasy author named Piers Anthony, who had uh, a, a really great uh, take on fantasy, and I liked Terry Brooks. Um, so, uh, you know, lot, lots. And then, of course, when, when you go to high school and, College, you stop reading for fun for a while, so it it took me a while to pick back up.
0: I think every adult goes through that, and then when work gets in the way, and like you mentioned, all the screen time and all the distractions, you really do have to carve out some time to do something that maybe you really loved as a kid.
1: Yeah, and 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 you forget that, Um, and I think that we're in, I guess you would call it a golden age of television, or you know, with streaming TV, the the content is so great, and of course, if you discover something, you can. You can really commit yourself to it for days or weeks. Um, and so it, it, it really um, squeezes the time that you have for reading.
0: So can we look forward to more Diary of a Wimpy Kid books?
1: Yeah, um, I'm definitely going to try to see how far I can take it. Uh, I think of myself more as almost a newspaper cartoonist, Um than a than a writer uh, than an author and the best newspaper cartoons go on for decades um, you know I'm I'm not into my second decade yet I think Charles Schultz went for five um, so I'd like to tell more stories in this universe and expand it a little bit with uh, Raleigh Jefferson uh, Greg's best friend
0: and I'm sure there are a lot of readers out there who look forward to each and every book that you have come in their way
1: I hope so. <laughs>
0: We've been talking with Jeff Kinney. The brand new Diary of a Wimpy Kid book number 14, Wrecking Ball, is available now. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It was really a pleasure to talk to you finally.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Take care.
0: There's a long-standing tradition of ghosts and Christmas stories. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, anyone? Author Karen White continues the practice with The Christmas Spirits on Trad Street, Set at Christmas time in Charleston, the novel features fan favorite Melanie Trenholm, who has, shall we say, a gift for communicating with those long past. I chatted with Karen about her long awaited Christmas novel. This is your first book set at Christmas time. Why did you choose the Tread Street series for that honor?
2: Well, this is the sixth book in the series, and I've never done Christmas before. And Charleston is so gorgeous at Christmas time, and it and it really gives me a whole new stage, really, to move these characters around. Um, and plus, it you know I knew it would lend itself to a beautiful cover, so um, uh, it was an easy decision.
0: For those unfamiliar with the series, your main character, Melanie, as well as some of the other women in her family have a gift of the sixth sense. And this time around, the spirits hearken from the time of the American Revolution. Why did you choose that time period?
2: Um, you know, a lot of people associate Charleston, for good reason, with the, with the Civil War. Um, a lot of people don't realize what a big Revolutionary War uh, stage Charleston was. And um, so I, I, I sort of wanted to explore that a little more, you know, to teach and also to learn a little bit more myself, because I'm such a huge history nerd.
0: And you must have dug up some fun facts during your research then.
2: Um, I did, um, including you know how the exchange building, the dungeon at the exchange building, which by the way, is the most haunted building in Charleston, um, that's where they held many, many patriots. Um, I, I actually use it in the book. Um, but what was so interesting before I dug up that fact, I actually did an event at the exchange building. And I remember every time I went into the elevator and would push the second floor, it would always take me down to the basement, which is where the dungeon is, so I just started using the stairs.
0: Yeah, I could imagine that 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 would cause you to use the stairs, (laughs) get some exercise in. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And you've also recently become a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, too.
2: Yes, that's correct. My daughter had done her ancestry, and that's when she discovered, you know, all these years of me writing about Charleston and the Lowcountry, not really knowing why, other than I just hadn't, I felt such an affinity for the area. And my daughter found out that, yes, we had ancestors in Charleston during the Revolution um, on both sides, actually, So one of
0: the other things reading this book, I couldn't help be struck by how daunting it must be to live in a house that's centuries old, not only because of the ghosts, but because of the upkeep.
2: Oh, my gosh. Uh, You know, and it's so funny because I adore old houses um, and my daughter actually, uh, (laughs) Apple uh, did not fall far from the tree. She has a graduate degree in historic preservation from the College of Charleston. And she actually appears in the book as Megan Black instead of her real name, Megan White, um, as as a student of historic preservation. Um, But she and I are just old Old house huggers. We love them. I want to live in one. And of course, every time I mention it to my husband, he just he has some very disparaging remarks about how expensive it would be to upkeep. And I understand that. But there is nothing like history you can hold in your hands.
0: You know, I recently visited Charleston for the first time and as I was on uh, my walking tour, every time we passed a house that had a for sale sign, everyone on the tour mm-hmm. was like on Zillow looking it up, be like, oh, how mm-hmm. this house is so old, but it's so cool. I wonder how much it would cost to own one.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, you, you would spend a fortune to buy it and then exactly another fortune to restore it.
0: And maybe live with some ghosts that may or may not want you around. Exactly. I'm willing to take the chance. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever think you'd be up to
2: book six in the Tread Street series? No. When I first started it, um, it was only supposed to be two books. And I was in the middle of writing the second book when my editor said, you know, people are really enjoying this first book. Can you write more? And I was thinking they'd want one more. And they're like, no, no, we want four And when I got to book four and I I typed the end, I felt like grief missing these characters already. So I snuck in a little epilogue. So if my editor wanted more, I could possibly do more. And they did come back and they said, and again, I was thinking maybe one more. um, And they said, no, we want three more. So that's why there will be seven in the series. There is one more book I still need to write.
0: Oh, I'm looking forward to that. This is actually the first one in your series that I read, and I have to go back and and read the other five that preceded it because I, I oh yes, I, was I highly recommend
2: because I think the charm of the series is the characters um, and how you meet them and how they learn and grow and change and how Melanie sort of changes and grows uh, along with uh, the story.
0: You know, we we hit a little bit that you love Charleston at Christmas time. What is Christmas time like for you and your family?
2: Um. Well, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to, to get everything done. I'm staring at my empty Christmas tree. It's been up for a week, and there's not an ornament on it. Um, you know, because it, now that my kids are grown... I really look forward to them. You know, us being home together as a family unit, neither one of them is married yet. And I, I love that. And I still do the Santa Claus thing where they have to go to bed at a normal time so that the Santa Claus presents can be delivered down, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, down uh, around the tree um, and, and certain Santa presents put in their stockings. I guess it's sort of a way of me revisiting the time when they were little children, and which is the most magical time of Christmas.
0: And Christmas through a kid's eyes is is probably the best experience, the best way to experience it. It is,
2: it is, it truly is magical. And even though my kids are now uh, what twenty six and twenty seven, I still do the the Santa thing. You know, I just can't help it.
0: No, I'm I'm one hundred percent with you with that.
2: <laughs> Good.
0: So we've been talking to Karen White, her first holiday novel, The Christmas Spirits on Trad Street. It's the sixth book in the series. There's one more to come. Thank you so much for spending some time today and talking to us about it.
2: Thank you, Lisa.
0: More than 150 years after it was first published, Little Women continues to be beloved. Case in point, the new film adaptation that's hitting the big screen this month. Among its legions of fans is author Virginia Cantra, whose new book, Meg and Joe, brings the March sisters into the 21st century. She tells us why she chose to give readers a contemporary retelling of the Louisa May Alcott classic for her first foray into women's fiction.
3: I think Little Women is a important story. It's been an important story to me. I read it for the first time when I was about 10. My grandmother gave us a copy. I think she thought it was a suitable story for girls. Um, And it is because it models all the different ways that we come to adulthood, that we invent ourselves. I chose it because it's important to me I, this, I wrote the book without a contract, and it took about three years because I wanted to put all of my emotions and my experience and my perspectives of reading the book at different ages. At 10, when I identified with Joe, who you know, burns with genius and wants to be a writer and is also, frankly, kind of awkward... Uh, I wanted, I, I was her. And then, as a mother with young children, and I'm reading the book again, and I identify so much with Meg, um, struggling to negotiate her twins, her marriage, and her aspirations. I love Amy, who's so independent uh, and determined and stylish. That's not necessarily something I identify with. And I identified with Beth, who actually is actively good. So as I was thinking about what all of this meant to me, I wanted to present that in a way that was fun and fresh and relatable. Uh, I love sisters' books. Little Women is one of the ultimate and first sisters' books. And so I just wrote the book of my heart.
0: How are your March sisters different from the original Meg and Joe, Beth and Amy in Louisa May Alcott's books?
3: I think their primary personality characteristics are the same. The original Little Women is a number of things. It's a coming of age story. It's a romance. It's a family drama. And what I did most significantly, in addition to bringing them into modern times, is I thought about when do we come of age now? And in the original Little Women, of course, the book opens, the girls are 12 to 16. I kept that nod to the original in the prologue of Meg and Joe, but I've aged the sisters up. So they're all in their 20s. Because I think that that's often the age when we're trying to decide who we are and what we want, when our dreams start to jive against reality, maybe a little bit. And so that part of the story, for me, it was important to have them be separate from their birth, family, and coming of age at that time. That's the biggest difference. And of course, I set the story in North Carolina, uh, which is where I raised my family, um, and where we have a an army base close, which is significant to the story.
0: And I love too that you sprinkle these little Easter eggs, or you call them little presents, throughout the book that fans of the original stories will most definitely pick up on.
3: Thank you. Yeah, I have a copy. Um, this it's actually the centennial edition. It's absolutely gorgeous with um, the the Jesse Wilson uh, Smith illustrations. Uh, that I've had since 1974. And that's actually the copy of the book that I gave my daughter to read when she was in high school. And right now this poor battered volume has so many Post-it notes in it (laughs) from me reading the book and going, this has got to go in. This is a, you know, this is a, when you think of the sisters, you think of their personality characteristics, but there are one or two events in the plot with each of them that struck me with real force at different times. And I wanted to at least nod to those formative events in in Megan Joe.
0: You know, you mentioned that your grandmother gave you the book when you were 10. You, in turn, gave the book to your daughter. What is it about Little Women that has allowed it to endure for so long and be such a favorite to so many people?
3: That's a great question. I think Little Women is about girls doing interesting things. They are not sidekicks. They are not uh, sweethearts. Uh, they are not, you know, the, the token girl who accompanies the boy on his adventure. They are the stars of their own story. Uh, in fact, the the one main male character that a lot of readers remember with affection, Laurie in the original, Trey in, in the retelling, Megan, Joe. He's kind of on the outskirts of their lives. He's an onlooker, you know, kind of watching them with, with real longing, but not, not part of that female community. So I think we love the book because it's got strong female characters who are active and interesting It's about families coming together in troubled times. Um, The book was published in 1868, uh, right after the Civil War. And it doesn't focus so much on the violence, but on the way that the family copes with their trouble. And I think right now, when our country is also divided, politically at least, it's wonderful for us to embrace a book about families pulling together in a tough time. And I also think it's great for us to have the model of these strong and very diverse women.
0: I 100% agree with you with on that note. <laughs> <laughs> so the book takes place over the Christmas season. Tell me, what are the holidays like in your family? Are they as full and chaotic as as they are in the March
3: household? They are. Um I will I will say now, my husband and I snuck away, just the two of us, for Thanksgiving, uh, and that was the first time in our marriage that we haven't had a table full for, for Thanksgiving. Uh, but we will have everyone for Christmas, which is wonderful. We have three adult children uh, and their uh, significant others and spouses, and my mom will be here and some friends. And we just kind of get used to putting the table and it starts in the dining room and then it goes all the way to the hallway and we pull in extra chairs from other rooms and I'm getting better at telling the kids, see, and I still call them the kids, what they need to bring because otherwise it can turn into a upstairs, downstairs sort of thing where where their dad and I are the downstairs staff, but they're, they're all very willing to pitch in.
0: Now I know you said you wrote uh, Meg and Joe without a contract, but we're looking forward to Amy and Beth coming coming up in their own book, right?
3: I know I'm I'm super excited. Amy is such a joy to write, um, and and I think Beth's story is going to take some twists that that readers will will enjoy.
0: And when can we expect that one?
3: I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I, I know. <laughs> I know when it's due, and I know that I've started, and then it will be a matter of Berkeley getting it out. Um, but but I'm, I'm excited about the story, and I think it's going well. So I hope within the year.
4: Well,
0: we look forward to that. And I know readers, too, if uh, if they pick up Megan Joe, they get that little Christmas present at the end of the book where they, with, they get to see a little bit of what you're working on coming up next.
3: Well, thank you so much, um, I, I'm, I'm so excited about the reception that this book is getting and so exciting that a story that means so much to me is actually resonating with readers. That's the best present I could have.
0: We've been talking with Virginia Cantra. Her new book is Megan Joe, a contemporary retelling of Little Women. Thank you so much for, for talking to us about it and happy holidays.
3: Happy holidays to you. And thanks so much for talking with me.
0: Joining us on the line is Lauren Paley from publisher DK with her top books to give. I got a sneak peek at some of the titles you're offering this holiday season. Why don't we start with where to go when, which makes it really easy to figure out when you should go to that exotic destination on your bucket list.
4: Absolutely. You actually picked my favorite book in general, and not just In DK. Um, So Where to Go When is, as you said, a gorgeous coffee table book. It has over 100 of the world's best destinations and when to visit month by month based on festivals and weather and whatever else is happening in a region. And I love this book because it just makes you want to dream and it makes you want to travel. And it is the perfect coffee table book for any traveler in your life.
0: So I know you're an avid traveler. I think you visited your 36th country recently? Yeah, something like that. (laughs) So if you were going to use this book, do you pick a place and then find out when the best time to go is? Or do you pick a month because the book's organized by month and then decide on a vacation based on what's suggested?
4: I think it depends. For example, this Thanksgiving, I was just flipping through the book and I didn't really have a plan in mind. I was just looking for the most beautiful photographs, trying to find what inspired me. And then I, you know, jotted things down and said, oh, okay, that's interesting. I should return to that idea later. Um, But I think that it's easy to say, okay, I have two weeks off in November. Where should I go? So that's a really good way to use the book to your advantage.
0: I know I was browsing through it, and I have a bucket list place on my travel list that I plan on going to in the next year or so. And I noticed it's on the list, and I was like, oh, it says to go in April. I'm like, I'm going to have to think about that when I start planning.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I know. I think it's interesting because it makes you think about and frame your vacation a little bit differently because sometimes you just take a destination and you don't really do the research of when is, it's actually a good time to visit. You don't think about the rainy season or the crowds. And then you go and you say, huh, I, I maybe should have gone a different time. <laughs>
0: So and then another book, uh, one that's geared more towards kids, is The Wonders of Nature, which is really pretty, really colorful look at plants and animals and other organic things that we share this planet with.
4: Yeah. So Wonders of Nature is absolutely gorgeous. It has this cloth-like cover, gold foil embellishments, a satin ribbon bookmark. It's the kind of book where when you open it up, you really feel like you're opening up a treasure. And it's something so special that Really all curious children can really appreciate. It's actually um, the second in a series after Anthology of Intriguing Animals, which is kind of in the same vein of exploring the natural world. And it came out last year, and it was a huge hit with both kids and parents. So we're really excited that we have Wonders of Nature this year. And what age is this book really geared towards? It's geared towards seven to nine primarily, but a little below and above that is totally fine. Why do you think books make the best gifts? Books are a great gift because you can really personalize them. You can think about what your giftee is interested in and then find a book that perfectly matches that interest. Um, And I think beyond that, giving a book is wonderful because it promotes learning and knowledge and curiosity. And what better way to spark someone's interest in whatever they're interested in than giving them this gift of learning and a book?
0: So I think there might be some people out there who who may be a little wearied or worried that they might pick the wrong book for the person that they're looking to give a gift to. Is
4: that possible? I don't think so. So what makes our books at DK so special is that they are highly visual. They're really gorgeous. They're the types of books that you just want to spend hours and hours with. So I think that even if the subject matter isn't something that someone is necessarily interested in at the start, once they get the book, they could learn, oh, hey, I actually do like nature photography, or wow, World War II is actually more interesting than I ever would have imagined. So I think that even if you don't match up the subject perfectly, that doesn't mean that they won't love the book.
0: And I guess worst case scenario, at least in the end, they might have a really pretty book on their bookshelf.
4: Oh, absolutely. These are gorgeous coffee table books. You really can't go wrong.
0: Well, Lauren Paley from DK, thank you for spending some time with us to tell us what DK has to offer and just sharing your love for books in general. Thank you so much. The spectacular natural splendor of America's national park system is on full display in National Geographic's Atlas of National Parks, packed full of gorgeous photos, informative graphics, and more than 200 historical and contemporary maps, this giant-sized coffee table book is perfect for anyone who's ever wanted to explore everything the U.S. has to offer. I spoke with author John Waterman about the book he calls A Labor of Love. This is an epic journey through all of America's national parks, from places people have heard of like Yellowstone and Denali to lesser-known parks like Indiana Dunes National Park. Tell us about the work that went into pulling together a book like this.
5: Essentially, the Atlas has been a labor of love uh, because I have been going to national parks for all of my life. I uh, had a passion very early on for wild places, and that naturally led me to national parks. Uh, And not only that, I had the opportunity to work as a backcountry and a rescue ranger in a couple of different parks in the 1980s. Then uh, all things fall into place when the National Geographic Society asked if uh, I would write this Atlas of the National Parks. So I jumped at the idea, and then it became a fairly massive research project. And since I'd visited most of the national parks, I already had a good subjective overview. But then it, the research uh, began in a more objective fashion of determining what the vital components of each of these 61 parks were and exploring them in prose style uh, in a fashion that corresponded with uh, so rich illustrations including photographs maps and and uh, graphics to complement the maps
0: it's really a, a gorgeous book to to just peruse and the pictures suck you in and then you start reading the information and you're drawn even more in
5: yeah i you know for me too i, I still pinch myself because I was so focused on the, the narrative and and getting it all right for each park and explaining what these parks were. And when the book, when the galleys finally arrived, I was I'm still stunned by the the images. is the best images in the world, as typical of National Geographic and some of the finest photographers. And the maps uh, are are a huge uh, passion. Of mine as well. Ever since I learned to read maps as a teenager, doing something like this is really, it's a dream come true because I look at maps and then pine to go explore those places because the maps show you uh, things that make you want to go to these places and actually touch the land itself and see what's out there.
0: Are the maps that are included in this book available in in some sort of digital or smaller form because I can't imagine that that someone's going to be lugging this this four hundred twenty page hefty <laughs> book around with them as they're going camping and exploring
5: yeah the yeah, remember the whole idea of this coffee table book is to get the hell away from your coffee table and get out there and explore. So yeah, take some snapshots with with your phone and and bring them with you. But to answer your question more directly, the opening maps are really from the National Park Service. Some of these chapters in the books have as many as five maps per uh, park. So we've come up with other maps, and not all of them, but a good portion of them are available if you were to do a search uh, online, because they're uh, largely public domain maps. Uh, that, that belong to all of us, just as the national parks do.
0: You mentioned, you know, your background as a, a national park service ranger, you're a longtime wilderness guide. Was there anything that surprised you as you were pulling together the narrative for this book?
5: To be perfectly candid, as I got deeper into the research, even though I I was intimate with many of these national parks, I was frankly shocked by the degradation uh, and deterioration of many of these parks. And this is multifaceted. And and why I hasten to add that the book is a celebration of our parks, um, they're terribly underfunded right now. Uh, and at a time when they've become more popular than ever before, over 330 million people visit a year. So this is one of the issues, the overcrowding in more than a dozen of these 61 national parks. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, because uh, we have issues of drought and, uh, and climate change overarchingly that uh, indirectly influence uh, invasive species. And these invasive species, to be uh, more definitive, include both flora and fauna that have um, entered parklands. Uh, with no in most cases with no natural predators for instance the burmese python uh, is now uh, proliferating throughout everglades national park and rapidly literally squeezing to death many of the small mammal species and even small deers and whatever national park you go to whether uh, in the everglades or other floridian parks uh, or western parks you find other uh, things like something that's innocuous as uh, cheat grass, which is spreading through the, the parks and, and taking over other grasses and is responsible for these, the, the spread of these forest fires uh, because it's perfect forest fire fuel that dries out so quickly. So the Park Service has its hands full just dealing uh, with those types of issues. I could go on and on, but I, I cover them in the book without belaboring them. Just so that the reader will understand wh- what we need to do to to keep these parks intact for for future generations.
0: And I would think that there's sort of this this misunderstanding or this expectation that oh they've been around forever. What's not to say that they won't continue to be around? But they really are. Whether it's climate change, over tourism, overcrowding, even politics, they really are at risk of not being there for future generations.
5: That's right. To be more precise, Glacier National Park, which is famed for its glaciers, there are many scientists that now predict that all of that, those glaciers will be gone from Glacier National Park in Montana by 2030. That's just 10 years from now, 11 years from now. So the, the park boundaries may still exist, but the parks as we know them today or knew them 50 years ago will be so vastly changed uh, that they will no longer contain the, the very things that we created them for.
0: So is really the takeaway from this book twofold? It's, it's to celebrate these parks and also to get people more involved in wanting to save them?
5: Yes, I think that's a, a fair description.
0: Where should people start if they want to start exploring these parks? Do they just start in their own backyard or flip open to a page in the book and be like, this is where the next family vacation is going to be?
5: I think that's a great way to do it. And flip open, uh, look through the book. And decide what tickles your fancy, and uh, there you go. But I have one caveat. Uh, Of course, Yellowstone and Yosemite and Great Smoky National Parks have myriad wonders that we all want to explore. But go to the lesser-known parks, and with a little tiniest bit of research, you can find there are parks like Isle Royale in in the middle of Lake Superior in Michigan – or uh, dry tortugas off uh, the tip of Florida, south of the Everglades, that are seldom visited parks where you can still touch the untrammeled and the pristine.
0: Well, we've been talking with John Waterman. The book is Atlas of the National Parks by National Geographic. It's gorgeous and so informative. Thank you for spending some time today and talking to us about it.
5: Well, you're very welcome. I'm, I'm certainly, uh, I've got a couple of, more than a couple of cases that I'm giving away for holiday gifts this year myself.
0: Uh, that shipping is going to cost you quite a bit. <laughs> if you're still not convinced books make the best gifts, consider this. They don't have to be assembled, batteries aren't required, and they're easy to wrap. Need I say more? No matter how you celebrate this time of year, I'd like to wish you the very happiest of holidays and look forward to sharing even more bookish content in the new year. It's time for me to hitch a ride home with a guy in a red suit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Lisa Chankovic. See you in 2020.